You're listening to Raising the Bar podcast, presented by City of Melbourne. Okay, good evening everyone and welcome to Raising the Bar 2019. This is a City of Melbourne event as part of our Melbourne Conversations program. On behalf of the City of Melbourne, I respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Bunurong and Woiwurrung Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This event is being recorded and probably photographed tonight. Please approach myself or our volunteer Nair if you have any questions about any of that. Um, I would now like to welcome Jen Ray up for her talk, Who Needs Artists in a Climate Crisis? Um, So I woke up with a little bit of a head cold this morning, so I've decided to stick with the script um, because I didn't know, you know, this new cough medicine, how it would um, play out tonight. Um, (laughs) um, So um, who needs artists in a climate crisis? So before um, I begin, I also wish to pay my, uh, acknowledge and pay my respects to uh, the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we stand, um, we are here tonight, the Boon the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and to any other First Nations people who might also be here. Um, I also want to acknowledge all of the emergency service people and the community members and the volunteers right now that are affected on the front line of the Queensland and New South Wales and WA fires um, for their efforts and their losses. Um, I'm not going to spend my time tonight really talking in depth about climate change, the science, the causes, the politics, the communications of. We'll just put that out there right now, okay? Um, instead, my starting point is that we are already in the climate crisis. So I won't be talk, um, and I also won't be talking about um, the term sustainability. Um, we're not talking about maintaining the status quo. We're actually in the emergency. So that's where we're starting. Um, to borrow Margaret Atwood, um, her saying, you know, she says, we're actually not talking about climate change anymore. We're actually talking about everything change, including, you know, our livelihoods, our systems of government, um, economic, social relations, as well as our visions for the future. So um, this is not really a format that I'm really used to speaking in. I normally speak to slides and flashy images and sounds and stuff like that. So, um, um, you know, uh, so this is, this is very different for me. Um, Tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about thresholds, collapse, survival skills, creative methodologies, and how we might navigate in the crisis um, to possibly reimagine a world that should have been. Um, These might all seem like tangential sorts of concepts, but if you follow along with me, I'll get to answering this question. So my name is Jen Ray. I'm an ARM-based artist and researcher, originally from Canada. I'm from Métis, which is Indigenous descent. I'm currently untethered from a university, which is a really powerful word for me. Um, Doing a lot of work on practice, writing and community-based projects that are looking at climate-related disaster scenarios, as well as speculative futures. I'm the director and creative lead of Fair Share Fair, which is um, a platform where performance, cookery, and art making and survival skills collide into sort of a positive disruption. And we talk a lot about future food security, because if you didn't know, um, 29 to 33% of greenhouse gas emissions come from food, so I think it's a really empowering space for us to engage. Um, And when I'm not rehearsing disasters and learning survival skills in permaculture, I'm parenting and learning survival skills um, with a a three-and-a-half-year-old. 
so um, I'm going to start here with a confession. Um, I didn't uh, set out to become an artist. I accidentally filled out the form wrong. Um, and, you know, rather than transferring into design, you know, almost 20 years later, here I am still practicing as an artist. Um, the thing about being an artist is that, you know, I learned how to see the world differently. I learned how to draw, paint, perform. I learned about things like aesthetics, meaning-making, storytelling, audience experience, observation, documentation, and most importantly, I learned about the powerfulness of critique. Um, and so I've been working at this nexus of art and climate change for about 15 years, and I think to such a large degree, my fine art training um, provided me with a toolbox of survival skills that I think we're going to need in the, um, in the climate emergency. So, yes, I'm going to be talking about thresholds. Um, you know, in climate science language, you often hear about tipping points and thresholds and probabilities and likelihoods. Um, and I started to think and reflect, you know, how, how is this talk going to, you know, how is it going to come together? You know, who needs artists? You know, who needs artists? And so I started to think about, you know, when did things change for me? When did they start to notice, you know, when, wh you know, when did I start to notice that what the scientists were saying was actually true. You know, when, when, you know, what were the images that shocked me, you know, or the statistics, you know, for all of us, you know, when did they start to make sense? And then to think about when did the panic, the shock, the fear, or guilt start to set in? So, you know, and then also who are the trusted voices? You know, there are so many different voices and news forms and so forth where we're getting this information. Who are the trusted forms? So I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you to reflect on it, and we're going to come back to it at the end of my talk. Um, but maybe take a moment here to think about when did you really, truly understand the magnitude of climate change if, in terms of what it meant to you, you know, your loved ones, and possibly to your community? Now, I can reflect possibly on three thresholds that transform the way in which um, I engage with the climate realities. And the first was back in 2002, 2003, when my sister, who was known as the Greenie in the family, um, had, had um, heard a lecture about this thing called climate change, and she brought it home. And what she said is, you know, okay, we all need to start recycling. We need to start wrapping our Christmas presents in newspaper. There's no more single waste, you know, um, consumables. And so we all got on board. And then she said, you know, I need you, the artist in the family, basically to help me convey my message. And so I did a lot of work around, you know, environmental issues that were really largely controlled by my sister's agenda. So... <laughs> So then there was this parting of ways between my sister and I. She went to Sweden to go and study um, environmental leadership, and I went to do fine arts in Montreal. But when she left, she gave me this book, and it was William McDonough's book, um, Cradle to Cradle, which is a lot about closed-loop design and biomimicry. And, you know, I, I read this book, and it was probably the worst time for me to read it, because you're really impressionable when you're going into a master's degree. Um, started doing some more research. I started reflecting upon my practice. I started listening to what was happening in, in the, at Concordia University. And I withdrew from my MFA. Um, yeah, which put me in hiding for a little while. But um, I, what had happened is I had crossed a threshold there where I actually started to understand that this was a big thing. And, um, you know, I didn't know how I, I as an artist, you know, how, how I would actually uh, deal with it. But I thought I would possibly go into another field. But 
only equipped with a BFA, I spent the next 10 years doing work that was really about raising awareness or trying to provoke action or, um, you know, trying to use my fine art survival ski, uh, skills to engage with people around global warming, biodiversity loss, water issues, and so forth. But what I really found was that I was largely preaching to the converted in isolated contexts, such as artist-ran centers or galleries. And so um, I had to get out of my comfort zone. And what I did is I started to diversify. Um, I started working for um, the Australian Collaboration, and I had this really great job synthesizing international government panel climate change um, assessment reports. And then I worked for the Climate Action Network doing a lot of work. They're an organization of, um, that basically is the infrastructure for about 100 environmental groups in Australia. And what I can tell you is that is those two jobs were probably the most depressing jobs I've ever had in my life. Okay, um, Report after report, the outcome was the same, um, oftentimes worse. Report after report, the recommendations, you know, nothing was legally binding, the leaders were stalling on action, and campaign after campaign, there was no significant impact. Now, here, putting my artist hat on, in art making, when something's not working, you work with the failure. If you're too close to it, you step back, you leave it alone, you dissect it, you welcome in critique and possibly collaborators from outside of your discipline. You take risks, and you're not afraid to start over. Now, this isn't a criticism in any way to those working in the field, but what I'm suggesting is that we could have and we can do more work together. The second threshold was a little bit more subtle. I went to Cuba on a holiday, um, the kind of backpacking one, not the kind in a resort. Um, village after village, I saw through the generosity of my host firsthand what sustainable development was or what McDonough had called cradle-to-cradle design except that what I was witnessing was, wasn't high-tech, it wasn't polished, and there were no sort of marketable consumables. This was everybody's way of life. It was creativity out of necessity, long-standing long relationships within the community, productive alternative economies of trade, and generosity. Decades of refined survival schools, skills, sorry, making do with what you have and sharing it with others. Altruism. So I returned to Australia. Um, by that point, I didn't quite mention, I went, you know, Montreal to Banff to Australia. Um, but I returned to Australia um, with a new resolve about my practice and research. I did something that I call now a skills audit. I started reaching out to people to see how I, how I could contribute to their work rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. I began a six-year collaboration with an environmental lawyer and a waterways engineer looking at the impact of unrestricted livestock grazing in rivers, which is the biggest barrier to cleaning up rivers in Australia. Um, it's also how I met Ang Herod Wynne-Jones back, um, I think it was in 2010, when she brought Tipping Point Australia here, which is an organization that brings artists and scientists together um, through an open space methodology where art and science are, are on sort of level playing grounds and not privileging one or the other. Um, so when we often hear about multidisciplinary or cross-disciplinary or interdisciplinary ways of working together or problem solving, they're often used interchangeably. They often have their own purposes and methods and that benefit research by crossing, combining, or navigating, navigating across disciplinary boundaries to work on a designated problem. People come together, they contribute their expertise, they take what they need if it benefits them, and then they move on. 
But transdisciplinary research, on the end, other hand, is when a group of people from different disciplines working together are, are working together to create new knowledge, and that can be conceptual, methodological, theoretical, or applied innovations that move through and beyond discipline-specific approaches to addressing what is a common problem. This is where I situate a lot of my work, um, is in transdiscipli transdisciplinary collaborations where the shared problem is the climate crisis. So, um, as I've mentioned there, and you can probably see, um, I'm, I'm not a scientist. Um, I but what I do know from speaking with a lot of climate scientists is that the science hasn't changed a lot in the last 30 years. It's actually just gotten stronger and better. Um, and that's thanks to the efforts of hundreds of scientists that have gone through the most rigorous, most comprehensive peer-reviewed um, research documents in, you know, in human history. And that would be the IPCC assessment reports. So despite this abundance of critical literature on the topic of global warming and related impacts, we have not had the political willpower or the shift in human systems to safeguard a livable future for future generations or for other living species. And so, I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons why. Um, I, I, I chose to look at Suzanne Moser. Um, her, she says that early scholarship on climate change emerged, emerged from the environmental and physical sciences. Scholarships, uh, oh, sorry, scholars in these disciplines were largely unfamiliar with the social sciences, hence that there were professional divisions due to specialization, disciplinary boundaries, institutional disincentives, and other factors that contribute to the lack of exchange amongst those communicating the science and those actually researching the science. I mean, now, now you know. Now that we're in the crisis, what we actually know is that it was a lot more than that. Um, there were, there were, and there are a lot of more powerful, more sinister forces that exist locally, nationally, and globally, determined to drive specific agendas, often involving power, profit, and greed, and the continual extraction of natural resources at all costs. So Mike Hume, um, when he's talking about the delay on um, climate action, he argues that ch climate change has always been a threat to ethnic, national, and global security. But because of these agendas, um, some would argue that we're already in what we'll call a global collapse. And I don't know if anyone's familiar with this new, this new essay that's come out by Professor Jem Bendel, um, where he's talking about that starting point, and he's talking about deep adaptation. So I'm still going through that, so I don't feel like I can comment on it, but there is a, there, there's some literature, and there's also some online platforms, and there's actually a Melbourne meetup happening up, up very soon on you know where we start from in that sort of crisis mode. Um, there's a group of researchers called Montessori et al. Um, they published a, a report in 2014. And what was really fascinating about this report is that they researched, they researched collapsed civilizations. And 19 out of the 23 advanced civilizations that they studied, so we're looking here at like Easter Island, the Roman Empire, the Babylonians, um, the Incas, the Tang and Song empires. What they noticed is that there were two main drivers that led, um, led to their collapse. And just let me, t you know, t let me know if this sounds familiar. Um, unsustainable growth driven by unsustainable agriculture lead leading to significant ecological strain. And number two, substantial economic stratification between the rich and poor. So now 
they also went on to talk about the trajectory of collapse. Um, they used the language of commoners uh, and the elite. And the elite. So the commoners will feel the blows um, greater in the initial the initial stages of collapse. And once the elites start to notice, it's often often because their services have been disrupted. That um, that by the time that they notice, it's too late. So those who can escape do, and those who cannot perish. And in Jared Diamond's trajectory of collapse, he also includes um, increased hostility between neighbors and trade partners. So um, I'm aware that I'm talking about some pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Um, it's really, really frightening, um, and it's confrontational. So how do, how do we continue? Where do we, you know, how do, how do we get involved to change the course if what we're witnessing and experiencing, experiencing is history repeating, it, him, repeating itself? So um, Nazim Taleb is a scholar and author who's written substantially on risk, probability, and volatility, so how we navigate shocks and stressors. Um, he's, written he's written a number of books, but the one I'm going to talk about is Black Swan. So prior to Australia being discovered, everywhere else in the world believed that all swans were white. They built their myths and their stories based on the white swan. So, but what happened was when Australia was colonized and there was a black swan, it threw up the ul their ultimate truth. And they started to question, well, if this is what we believed in, what other things are, do we believe in that might not be true? And so um, what Taleb talks about is that he cautions us to critically think about our ultimate truths. So these are the things that we believe in without questioning, as they may actually reveal our ultimate vulnerabilities. So it might be the myth of progress, job security, that the government will act in our best interest, that technology might save us, or that the planet will just naturally recover. So for almost a decade, my black swan was that I remained steadfast and hopeful that our global leaders would divest from fossil fuels and would have a legally binding global treaty to divert catastrophic global warming. I believed, like a lot of people, that the science would bring a rational response because really, nobody wants extinction, right? So on August 7th, 2005, um, after seeing Louis Puyasos' uh, film Racing Extinction at the uh, Melbourne Forum Theatre, I sat in the theatre sobbing alone, wiping my eyes on my sleeve and blowing my, my nose, nose in my shirt. I brought Kleenex today. Um, um, I made a decision to cross another threshold, and that was facing the reality that shit's going to happen, and as a result of our inaction on climate change, you know, I went into this film feeling really hopeful. Um, there was a lot of publicity about it, and I came out a wreck. It was a big budget, and it was ambitious. It had a lot of notary um, activists in it, such as Jane Goodall and Elon Musk, um, telling the story about the sixth mass extinction event. I hope that this film, with all of the money pumped into it, was going to tell a new story. You know, the United Nations was involved in it. There were all these um, satellite projects that were happening. But it wasn't the film. It was the audience. The, unusual sus or the usual suspects of the climate movement. Who else would give up on a Friday night in Melbourne to see a film on species extinction? And the story, it was the same. After a decade of climate change awareness and taking action, the message, the mode, the audience remained unchanged. And that was whether it was a rally poster, a big budget documentary headliner at an international film festival. 
Climate change has always been more of an engagement and communications crisis than it's ever been an environmental one. So what I didn't know then that I do know now is that for those, for at least five years, I was living and practicing in what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross would call stages two through four of the five stages of grief, anger, bar bargaining, and depression. When it came to comprehending how a two, two degree increase in global temperatures would cause everything change. My partner and I were expecting our first child, and the stakes all of a sudden became much higher. And on that night, walking out, I vomited in the theater restroom. Richard Eckersley states that there are three main responses to fears of the apocalypse, nihilism, fundamentalism, and activism. Nihilism is indifference or negativity to the information. You know, it, it, the response is like, you know, well, shit's going to happen. I might as well have a good time. Uncertainty and fear of the unknown is a stimulus that motivates an effective response, such as flight, um, fight or freeze. Fundamentalist thinking, whether it's religious or secular, can provide a false sense of security or help us temper anxieties over future uncertainties, or it can be more sinister. Fundamentalism can also breed intolerance and generate simplistic solutions to complex problems. This sort of thinking denies pers personal response um, for inaction. We're starting to see a rise in fundamentalist thinking in the climate crisis worldwide. Both, both Isabel Stengers and Naomi Klein have written quite a bit about the rise of climate bar barbarism, such a hard word for me, um, in the form of white supremacy and extreme right-wing conservatism in the climate emergency as a, mean, as a means of protecting <coughs> profits and also concealing inherent racism. And I don't know if anybody saw the Guardian's article yesterday by Peter Lewis, um, but he was basically naming and declaring that the Australian government is now in an authoritarian mode with their attacks on protesters, journalists, and new laws to outlaw consumer and environmental boycotts fueled with divisive comments in the media, um, all, all happening while you know, this bushfire ca catastrophe is happening. So the parting message that Peter Lewis had was that now is not the time to become complacent. So the activism, which is the third response by Eckersley, um, it's, it's not maladaptive like nihilism and fundamentalism. It's adaptive and it works from the bottom up and it often comes from the margins. Moser, back to Moser, you know, she says that people who engage in activism see it as a matter of personal or civic responsibility, duty, or social justice. While competing priorities, activist stereotypes, and the potential dissemination of misleading um, messages is a possibility with activist groups. Um, Eckersley argues that activist thinking is often embedded, embedded with hopeful and empowering sorts of ways of thinking that is outwardly focused with a strong desire for change. And that activism in itself can ward off feelings of inertia and apathy and can connect people through shared value and purpose. So um, in June, I had this great opportunity to meet with James Hogan from Desmog Blog, which is, um, he's, it's, he, James is a public relations guru, um, and he's also, he's just finished being the chair of the David Suzuki Foundation. He's worked a lot with corporations, governments in public relations, and what he decided was he was going to give his tools to the good side. And in our conversation, um, 
he, gave, he, he first gave a keynote on propaganda. And, you know, and the fact that we often think of propaganda as you know, uh, a means to confuse or to obscure or manipulate information. But what he was talking about, that the real sinister side of it, is that um, it creates divi divisions or teams. And when we have teams, what that does is it undermines people's confidence in each other, the facts and or the leadership. And that's what we're sort of seeing with our government and, and with the conservative governments worldwide, where, you know, what they're messaging, the way that it's coming out is creating these divisions, and it's then, you know, infiltrated and, and continued through media. And what this does is it reinforces feelings of inertia and apathy. One of the things, the morsel that he left us with at the end of the, our conversation is that one defeats the fanatic or those seeding self-interest by having difficult conversation, often with those outside of our bubble. And those are our social f spheres of influence, and that's where we have some power. So we need to lean into the tensions. We need to try to find some common objectives, values, or points of views as starting points. And that's what Guattari talks about in terms of cultivating dissensus. It's not about everybody agreeing on the same thing. It's actually how do we work together at the face of crisis, crisis and put our differences aside. So, you know... Um, he, uh, you know, we were talking about how, you know, in, in this, you know, it would be important to have rules or protocols for discussion um, in terms of how we engage with these topics and issues um, because they're, they're effective. Um, they, they're, they're our future. They're things that, um, that touch upon our greatest fears. Um, in Fair Share Fair, we do something now called performance palavras, um, and we're audience and participants, and these are strangers that come into a space they, um, they often don't have a, a, sh a shared language or know each other. And we bring them in for a designated period of time to have an objective, rigorous conversation about a contentious um, topic or a provocation. And the reason why we do this is that it's based on this idea of a creativity con continuum that often um, artists will be quite familiar with. So I had to even Google this because I couldn't remember my accesses. But, okay, so imagine, you know, you have your x-axis, which is the horizontal line, and y is your, um, is your vertical. Now, if this is your ideas axis and this is your, um, your time, the more time you spend together, the more you're going to start generating interesting ideas. So everyone knows that the end of any sort of government or stakeholder engagement thing, they leave the brainstorming to the last. Right? People are tired, right? And they only have spend like 15 or 20 minutes for brainstorming new ideas. Well, you're just getting to know each other in this point, right? You're, people are just tossing out ideas that they've heard before, the first thing that comes to the mind. But artists know that when they go into the studio, it's, it's a rare occur occurrence to go in there and have that aha moment, right? You actually, it's something that you need to spend time with. And the, more, the longer you spend time with it, the more you start to get these crazy ideas until you're completely exhausted. And somewhere between those crazy ideas and we've been here before is something interesting. And so um, this, is, this, is, this is where there's power, is spending time together, right? And long time together and leaning into, com into difficult conversations and thinking critically. Okay, so now, now let's just think about the IPCC report that came out last year, right? So um, that report said that we have 12 years to curb runaway climate catastrophe. So 
the reality is that we're going to experience some losses. And, but on the same token, let's, let's just step back and think about what 12 years looks like. So Facebook, it was released to the public in 2006, and Twitter followed shortly afterwards. The first Apple iPhone was released in 2007. Okay, so 12 years ago. So if we can consider how social media and mobile technology have transformed our global culture and communications in less than 12 years, it would be reasonable to argue and moderately hopeful that we can transform some of our systems. So it took all of the tools and knowledges and experience to bring us to this precipice of climate disaster to the point in which shit is going to happen. Um, it's going to take the same approach. You know, it's going to be, this is a call to arms to artists and non-artists alike for us to work together. So um, to the artists that are in the audience, to create, into the, to create into the future as artists across borders, disciplines, institutions, and knowledges, it's going to be more about building relations and nations. The ways in which we practice and the resources that support our lovely livelihoods are going to be finite in a future impacted by climate change. It's plausible in our lifetime that we will see our venues, galleries, studios, audiences, and other platforms where we create, tour, and present affected. Therefore, it's a critical time as practitioners to reconsider our capacities and voices, how we untether from our ways of, un of conventionally working within and across institutional structures, and how we can adapt to the challenges ahead by contributing to the whole. So, and as art critic Susie Gaz Gaz uh, sorry, Gablick points out, the question is not, can art change the world? The world is changing. The need to transform the egocentric version that is encoded entire into our entire worldview is the crucial task for us. The issue is whether art will rise to the occasion and make it useful to all that is going on. Artists are meaning makers, crafters of experiences, provocateurs, adept at dealing with uncertainty and complexity, agile and responsive thinkers, who love risk, often work with it, as, as well as failure, critique. And these are fuel to um, creative processes. And also, most are quite resistant to maintaining the status quo. So there are some artists um, who are doing some ambitious, critical, collaborative work in Australia right now. And I thought I would just sort of um, just touch on a couple of them. One is a center for everything, Will Foster and Gabrielle DeVitri. Um, who created a fascinating fossil fuels and arts network map. It was at Monash University um, a few months back. And what they did is they looked at the connections between the fossil fuel industry and the arts, and such as, you know, why are arts, organization, arts organizations accepting fossil fuel money? And, and they question the implications of receiving that money and what that means into the future. And then there's Wollongong artists, um, Lucas Eileen and Kim Williams, who have been doing a five-year project called Sugar Versus the Reef. And they've been looking at the role of artists, scientists, and farmers and how they can work together on large-scale ecological um, issues, such as the relationship between the sugarcane industry and the Great Barrier Reef. And lastly, a project that I've been involved in since 2016, as well as Ang Harrod, um, and that's Arts House's Refuge Project. And that's where artists come together and meet for the climate emergency. So now in its fourth year, artists, emergency services, local government, indigenous elders, community members imagine and rehearse 
disaster climates, uh, disaster scenarios. So there was a flood, a heat wave, a pandemic, and over the next two years, we're looking at climate-related displacement. And this is how we, you know, we're doing this work so we can shift the conversation around disaster preparedness, self-reliance, and community resilience. So this transdisciplinary collaboration positions everybody's legs under the same table and focuses on the power of experimentation in negotiating risks and the relationships that we make together. And one of the questions that it asks is, knowing what we know now, how can we plan and cope with the forecasted scope and scale of climate-induced extreme weather events while acknowledging the socioeconomic inequalities of how those impacts will be experienced? Okay, so to everyone else in the room, um, coming back to that, that question that I asked you earlier, um, that moment you know, that you really understood the magnitude of, cli of climate change and what it would mean to you. I'm going to leave you with um, two final questions and thoughts. The first question is, are you prepared to actively engage in the climate crisis and cross some personal and professional thresholds? Now is the time to self-audit your capacities and capabilities and ask what are the survival skills that I can contribute and what am I willing to give up? What are, the, you know, what are the conventions or institutions that I can untether from? So um, Shannon Hayes talks about survival skills. She wrote a book called Radical Homemakers. And she says one of the first things that you do when you realize that, um, that you need to know something, that you have a deficit in your knowledge is an acknowledgement that, okay, I, I need to learn something. You know? And the second thing is you go out and you reskill yourself or you try to get that knowledge and so forth. And that's where most survivalists stop. You know, I've read lots and lots of survival books, and most of them are written by paranoid, white, middle-aged men, okay? Right? So, um, and that's where they stop. They, they hoard the knowledge, and they keep it, and, you know, they amass, um, and they close themselves off to the world. Shannon Hayes talks about the fact that you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be able to problem-solve everything, it's, but you actually need to know what you can contribute and how, and know your neighbors and have relationships with them. And, you know, when it comes to Posada Day, somebody supplies the jar, somebody picks the tomato, somebody has the recipe, and you make 270 liters of Posada, um, which we do in our community every year. Um, and then my second question is, um, can you imagine what survival and thriving through a climate crisis might look for you as well as the generations after? Are there difficult discussions you have to have with people in your communities of influence to become more, uh, more self-reliant and resilient? What do you value? What are the steps that you need to take just starting now? I'm reminded of Métis writer Erica Violet Lee's essay, called Reconciling in the Apocalypse, where she talks about imagining the world that should have been before colonial disruption. And one of the things that she says is that it's, it's a step-by-step -step process. Relationship by relationship, word by word, we, we rebuild. But our starting point is imagining the world that should have been. So to return to that question, who needs artists in a climate crisis? It might be fair and possibly somewhat ide idealistically of me to propose that what we actually need is each other in survival, adaptation, transforming, and reimagining. We have less than 12 years, and time is ticking. Thank you.
so now it's Q&A time, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A hard one, though. yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I've done two big, big projects that have, have really looked at that. Um, what I found is that art is non threatening the most part you know um to say that something is an experiment you know we're just going to spend some time together you know we're going to probe we're going to look at this question and so forth and see you know we, we're all addressing that you know like with riparian land management with all those stakeholders everyone agreed that cows and rivers is a bad thing right but everyone had a different solution and they had different shifting agendas and so forth but we had a common objective and we could come together and talk about that. And in doing so, and saying that it was an art project and, and so forth, we were developing as it as we went. Similarly with refuge, you know, we we have there are common objectives in refuge where we do come together and we are and we bring in all different sorts of expertise and we hold this issue, you know, outside of ourselves and and, and we probe it objectively. And you know, there there are methodologies in terms of how we how the decision making happens. You know, this is something that is produced by Arts House. There are different, you know, different investor, investors in it. You know, there are also there's also the fact that emergency services are often, you know, seen as, you know, institutions of safety and security and so forth. That's their reputation. You know, they, you know, we navigate those risks and those difficult conversations about, you know, you know, what's something that you can't do in your field that we might be able to do as an experiment in an arts context, right? And we sometimes can get those answers that way by imagining as opposed to real life sorts of scenarios. So that would be the, the difference. I think there, uh, so the question was about, you know, um, you know, what what do we sort of imagine in terms, or what is our sort of priority in terms of where we might take these works, you know. Um, I live in the reality that we have 11 years. I'm really, I don't go and do anything in anybody else's community that I won't do in my own community. Um, I'm not about to go you know, to different places and try and set up different projects or, or try and move an agenda. What I'm actually trying to do is share the information and share the methodology and the ways in which we went about things. Because what we've learned in Refuge by you know, speaking directly with emergency services is that every disaster is different and therefore every response is going to be different and it comes out of context. So what we can do is we can just say, well, you know, this is what worked here and this is what we did, you know, um, but that might not work for your community. Right, but what we what we've done in some ways is gotten them into thinking about the potential of, and I mean, and that's that's creative thinking is to imagine the potential of, right? So I think that that's where um, that's where I situate my work. That's and and also intent in in, in practicing now. 
I often wonder, though, you know, if climate change wasn't this thing. You know, 12 years, that, that report that came out was gut-wrenching. And up until then, you know, we were talking about this thing in faraway places, distant timescales, the next generation, our children, our grandchildren, you know. But all of a sudden, this has just put it right in, in front of us. And that has been a really confrontational sort of experience that now really informs what I do on a, on a daily basis and how I plan things into the future. So, yeah, thank you. That's a good question. Yes. Oh, the first one. Gosh, I mean, I think a lot of it has been around growing food. I, um, and, I, I mean, Fair Share Fair was started because I realized that I actually was lacking in almost all skills when it came to growing food. And, um, and also, you know, questions of, like, if I had to kill an animal, would I know how to do it? You know, what can I eat? You know, and looking at survival books and going, this doesn't apply to me. You know, um, I'm, I'm Canadian, you know, like I, I'm much more, I, I know how to survive a lot more in Canada than I do Australia, you know, so like, I mean, it, it, it's starting to go, okay, well, what would grow here, you know, if I'm staying here and, um, you know, I, I teach my daughter how to keep her hands warm when it's cold outside, you know, and it's something I know from being Canadian, getting frostbite, you know, but um, I think a lot of it is around food, and it's food is something that brings us together, and what we say in Fair Share Fair is that it's also the thing that has the capacity to tear us apart, you know, if you start thinking about food shortages. The city of Melbourne and most of the precincts around um, Melbourne only have three days worth of food should a, a disaster strike, you know, and that's taking into account bars and grocery stores and so forth. So, you know, the balance tips in a disaster, you know, this, we might be more privileged, you know, by being able to go out and have dinner on a regular basis and not have much food in our fridge and our neighbor who might not be able to afford that knows how to grow an abundance of fruits and veggies, you know, they might be more privileged when disaster strikes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 huge. I mean, yeah. I mean, when I started and read that book, I was thinking about the environmental impact of my practice as a painter, right? And now I'm over here, right? Like I I've been at the rallies, right? I've written letters to you know to different officials, you know. Like I I think it's it's multi pronged. I I it, you know it took all of the, all of this to get us here. It's going to take all of this to get us out of here. And so. Um, I think really, uh, you know, I can't speak in the language of law. I can't speak in the language of mathematics or science, but there are people who can. But I can speak in the language of engagement and performance and meaning-making and so forth. So it, I, th I think it's actually about how we come together, right, and these sort of multi-pronged sorts of ways of 
doing you know very localized activities all the way up to sort of the national and the and the global and yeah it's uh, it's it's all the tools pretty much yeah Any any other questions? Oh sure. I thought the most one of the most interesting points you brought up was about tipping point and this idea of bringing scientists and artists together. Because mm -hmm. um, I feel like as, as a humanity, one thing that transcends is, is music and art. I'm a musician myself, so I find that really fascinating. Um, how much? I mean, Ang Herod, I don't know if you'll talk about that tonight, but Ang Herod actually is, you know, the director of Tipping Point Australia who actually brought Tipping Point here. Um, from my experience of working with climate scientists, from my experience of working with a lot of scientists, um, is that they're very receptive in terms of how, you know, how the, the research that they're, that they're doing can be communicated and disseminated to, to wide audiences. I mean, what we've really seen is... Um, this deficit model of information transfer for the last 20 years in terms of the public's not getting the understanding of climate change, so why don't we just throw more information at them, right? But rather than understanding about the framing or, you know, the modes of delivery or who the person was who was actually giving the message. So we don't need to know, know all the facts in order to make message, or uh, sorry, to make change in our lives and so forth. But we need to know the thing that, I mean, when it comes down to it, what's in it for me? What's, what's the thing that I value, right? And so, I mean, I think in many ways, maybe you might think the same or differently, you know, many scientists are really open to conversations about their work, right? And, and experimenting and collaborating and so forth. The, the one thing I would say is that you have to give it time and let that process sort of generate what, it, what it's going to become as opposed to having a, a rigid sort of idea.
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, th there's a couple things there. I mean, I often ask, what's the alternative? You know, like, if I'm not doing this, what's the alternative? You know, I've, I have a little one as well, you know, um, and I also have to look at her in the face um, in terms of my actions. So, I mean, that informs a lot of what I do. Um, as, as, you know, from being in it for a really long time, I've changed my practice, you know, you know, I... and. If, if climate change didn't exist, I probably would be holding the flag about art for art's sake, right? And I do see the value of it. And, I d and I'm, in many ways, I'm conflicted around the, um, the instrumentalization of, th of this. And that's why I feel it's important as an artist to talk about it coming from an artist's perspective as opposed to what art can do for this movement, right? And so, um, yes, we do need um, outlets, you know, and I, and I do see art as, as being that. I also have a drawing practice that I've never given up. Um, I just have, as of um, two years ago, I just stopped um, doing any work for public presentation. But I do keep the drawing going. And that's and I use it as a mnemonic device, really, to really understand a lot of the things that I'm reading and how I can actually um, get it out of myself. And I put it on, onto paper. So I do, I do see you know, what would some would call as the therapeutic effects of, of art as well. I'm happy to stick around. I'm going to stick around for Angherd, so if anybody wants to have a conversation afterwards, I'm happy to do that. But thank you, everyone, for tonight. This has been great. You've been listening to Raising the Bar podcast, presented by City of Melbourne.